This is Beyond the Farm Gate, a show where we shine a light on great Australian stories in agriculture. On the show, you'll hear from farmers who've survived challenges like fire, flood and drought, farmers who run innovative and unique agribusinesses, and farmers who are balancing work and family in rural Australia. You'll be inspired hearing their stories and pick up some insights along the way. I'm your host, Annie Herbert. Alongside me, Matt Hour. Today we're chatting with David Cornish. David is the Director of the Centre for the Study of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham College. He's also a proud Victorian farmer, having grown up on his family's property in Casterton. In this episode, you'll hear about the importance of wealth creation in agriculture, how there's never been a better time to pursue a career in primary production, and how Australia is producing the cream of the crop when it comes to the next generation of farmers. Let's jump in. Thanks, David. Thanks for joining us today. A pleasure to be here. Now, your connection to agriculture goes back quite a long way and you've had quite an extensive career in ag, but are you able to tell us about where your connection to agriculture comes from and a little bit about growing up on a farm? Yeah, uh, I suppose my connection comes through the the family farm. My, My grandfather brought a place in 1932, just a bit north of Cassidy in Western Victoria, and had the pleasure as, as a young child of spending most of my holidays on the farm. My uncle was running it at that stage, and we were lucky enough to, to be able to come along and just join in where we could. And it was a, mainly a sheep operation. And so that was what I grew up with. We also ran some cattle, and that was probably where my interest in agriculture started with. In that, did you ever think about your future in agriculture and think that it would lead to where you are today? Oh, God, no. Listen, I was a typical young fella taking each day as it came, I think. Really, in those days, I see what my daughter's gone through and my sons went through. We really didn't think about what we were going to do. It was just sort of, what what are the opportunities? I knew I wanted to do something in agriculture, but I didn't want to do something in science. I wanted to do something in business. That's where agricultural economics came to. Now, after doing four years of economics, I realised that economics actually had nothing to do with business. But hey, at that time, it sounded sounded cool. And I thought (laughs) actually having grown up in Melbourne, moving to Armidale, New South Wales would be a bit of fun. Father always said the only reason I went up there is so I could play rugby and drink beer. And (laughs) that was probably a fair call too. And I got a degree on the way. So we're very much, I don't think I was the only one who took graduate, uh, please don't tell my students this now, who didn't take it quite as seriously as we should have, uh, but they were, it was great fun. And and the great thing about that was the course was good, could have been, was it was it really what I wanted to do? Probably not, but the people I met along the journey were excellent. And, and I still say to the students today that the biggest thing that you'll take away from your tertiary qualification is not what comes out of my mouth it, it's the networks and connections that you make that will that will set you up for after university and i still live by that today david can i skip back for a second and and without giving away your age of course but the landscape of the <laughs> the 70s and 80s can you tell us about the attractiveness of the agricultural industry when you were considering a career that's all right, Matt. As I say, I'm 10 years from retirement, I think, before they, they take me out the back into the long paddock. So I'm happy with that. So, yeah, I grew up in the 70s I was in, in agriculture and, and, and the 80s. 
I would argue that it was a hell of a lot different scene in those days, both culturally and also opportunity-wise. When I was growing up, we had the situation. We, we there was a lot of subsidies in in the world around that. If I can put it that way, there was. We used to talk about in Europe about these mountains of butter, these lakes of milk, mountains of meat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and there was a huge overhang over our, our commodity markets around the world. And and agriculture had its 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 ups. I mean, I remember in the mid seventies, cattle prices going through the roof. But we also had these huge crashes. And when I left university, what people forgot was that when we had four price crashes, we had droughts and things like that, it wasn't unusual for us to be shooting sheep because it was cheaper for us to shoot sheep than to actually take them to market and sell them. And just put that in perspective, I sold mm-hmm. cull sheep the other day and they made $100, cull sheep, uh, cast for age go back 20 or 30 years and it was cheaper for me to pay 10 cents for a bullet than to actually take them to market. So the dynamics of agriculture has changed significantly, I think, for the better than in the opportunities. Now, people would say, well, it was cheaper to get into agriculture in that days. So you could actually buy land, et cetera, et cetera. Was it, given what the, the, the income we could get off it? I, I question that. And certainly when I started with the bank in my first year, I was my first loan I was doing was at 22%. Just just wow. think about that for a second. I was giving a person an overdraft which had an interest rate of 22%. Compare that today, you should be able to. I'm certain Royal Bank will be giving out overdrafts under 3%, mate, wouldn't they? And, and certainly long-term lending is a lot cheaper than that. So, you know, if you look at that perspective, the other thing was unemployment rates. The Department of Ag, especially at the state levels, were closing down their support for agriculture. So we were coming into a, a, a market where there was more no's than yes. There was more people looking for jobs than there probably were the jobs. Now, I remember sitting down with a student my first year, I was here full time, and he was sitting down there with three job offers, of which I was calculating the money. I was going to ask him, well, tell me which one you don't want to take. I'll, I'll, I'll have the other one. It was that good. <laughs> So I think the, 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 the great opportunity now for, for agriculture is this ability to get a career in agriculture that I don't think was available as much as it is today. So there was also this culture of, how do I, how do I say it? And again, I don't want to criticise any of my peers, but there was if you can get out of agriculture, get out of agriculture. You know, mm-hmm. go to the cities. That's where the job is. That's where the money is. Why would you come back to to agriculture? There's no money to be made, et cetera, et cetera. What I found, and I think the opportunities are there and uh, and significant for wealth creation just as well as they are in the city. So can you tell us a little bit about your decision to go and study agricultural economics and given what you've just said about the attractiveness of the industry at that time? It was a passion, Matt, and I can't put it in here. And I look at that now is it, and look back on what I've done Agriculture is what interested me, and I don't know why, what it is about agriculture, whether it's the people, whether it's the production systems, whether it's the the challenges, whether it's the, uh, there's just something about agriculture that no other business that I've been involved in gives me the same 
in enjoyment. <laughs> it's a funny word. It's certainly <laughs> giving me cheers, um, but just giving me that that experience that I, I can't get anywhere else. Later on, when I was working there with the bank, there was a there was an opportunity for me to go and work in the city because if you want to make it in banking, you've got to work in the city. And I just found it as boring. And again, nothing against the people, but it would just didn't have the 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 fascination that that work in agriculture and the opportunities and the technology and the research and the and again I come back to the people that I was able to experience when I was working in agriculture and, and that's why it doesn't motivate me I'm not going to go back in there why did economics mate as I said I thought that had something to do with business how wrong was I <laughs> <laughs> But having said that, so, I did learn a bit. And drank a few beers along the way. Oh, yeah, and played a few games of rugby, which was a bit of fun. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on briefly there before, David, wealth creation. And and I know it sort of probably ties in with the passion for ag and it has in your subsequent career. Can you tell us about your fascination with wealth creation in agriculture in particular? Yeah, You've got to go back to to when I, you know, again, when I was working in the bank, what a banking career gives you is the opportunity. And I always say this to the students is that don't look at banking as some kind of boring old fart sitting behind a desk ticking boxes. What, what it gave me was unlike any other business, and I've been a consultant, I've worked for Landmark, et cetera, et cetera. So I've had this service relationship with farmers. But as a banker, you get to experience everything about that farmer client that you're dealing with you, you you get to see the numbers so it doesn't matter what you see on the front page of the land or the weekly times or whatever it is you know whether that's a good farmer or not by what's hitting the bottom line then you're able to take that information go on on farm and actually look at what they're doing so you're actually able to look at what production systems are running and more importantly and this is the one that's taken me a while to work out people management and how the family works. And so how they actually create those three things together and create a successful business. So what was interesting to me was I was reading about benchmarking this or benchmarking that and people doing this or following some system. And and because I was with the bank, I could look at the numbers and say, well, that's not quite right. You know, they might be doing that, but that's not giving them you know, a, a financial viable solution to what they're doing, but this other person is. And and usually what was fascinating was was that it was the clients who you didn't see in the paper, that you got hold of their profit and loss balance sheet and said, wow, what are these people doing? I've got to go and see this business. And so I was really fortunate that I was able to spend my time as a banker understanding, well, trying to understand what linked what they did on farm or what they did as a family to actually creation of wealth. The other thing that I found, and and I especially found this when I was working with some of the larger farmers, their financial performance was as good, if not better, than anything I was seeing in in the city. There's always this, in the public press, this how hard it is or how depressed, how all farmers are going around with the basically the bottom out of their jeans and it's all going broke and it's all drought and things like that. Well, I was reading these articles and then I was seeing people right next door to probably the person that was in that article making a ton of money, making fantastic financial decisions and and making incredible wealth creation opportunities that, that the other person wasn't. So why was it that person who were directly across the fence were making money and this other person was going broke? 
what I also was able to work out was it wasn't always about external factors. In fact, quite the contrary. It wasn't about drought. It wasn't about commodity prices. And it certainly wasn't about debt. It was more about how they actually ran the business. What was really fascinating was that people who seemed to be able to get through the hard times and make good money in the, in the good times were never ones to blame external issues. Yeah, they'd, they'd talk about how tough it is, but they'd say, Matt, this is what I, I'm doing. This is how I'm taking ownership of the decision. Yeah, I stuffed up here, but this is what I'm doing. So it was really interesting the complexity of, they wouldn't talk it in these languages, but the, the decision-making maturity that these people had about dealing with risk and turning that into wealth. Mm, I think there's another really interesting topic that you know I took out of that, and that's the image of agriculture and you know the difference between you're saying there's a lot of people that are having a lot of success on farm, but then what we hear about and what we read about is quite often those negative stories, and that's one of the reasons why we started our podcast. But do you think that that image is limiting people from entering into agriculture as well? Yeah, it does, I think, Annie, to a point. I think there's a couple of things, and it's really interesting when you talk about the the, the pathway into agriculture, and I'll give you an example, and a personal example. My son, growing up, wasn't on the farm as much as I was, but, you know, you'd go up there on the weekends, but certainly didn't, let's say, doesn't have what I call the animal sense that, that someone who's grown up on a farm would have, but loves being involved in agriculture. So he's now, because of COVID, he went back to the farm and, and, and was doing his uni studies there, but he's been working on other farms. And I was thinking, how do you actually get him into a career path working with sheep or working with cattle or, or doing this that he would have if he was going into, a, a say, a factory in town? I think those pathways and that knowledge is is – it's really difficult. It's really, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of touched a bit of a button, Annie, because I've been thinking about this over the last couple of days about how do we create that career path? Because, you know, there are all these jobs in agriculture. We need to get city people involved. But you know when you stand in a yard with someone who, who knows stock and who doesn't know stock. And that's not something, it's not about just, okay, this is how you close a gate or this is how you open a gate. It's how do you teach them that experience without having time to do that and actually making it worthwhile. So that's a challenge about finding those pathways that allow people who have no agriculture experience to get into agriculture, uh, especially with livestock. Grains may be a little bit easier because we're seeing pilots uh, working on harvesters up at Birdship and things like that. You know, there's some great mm-hmm. stories around that. Yeah, there is that attitude to agriculture. I, I, I grant that, but I think it's changing. There's also the issue around safety. And we have got to be conscious, and it's, it's, it's a big issue that we need to deal with that might be growing, is that I saw some statistics again, even during COVID period, agricultural death rates are far too high. There mm. are too many people getting seriously injured and dying in agriculture. If you're sitting in Melbourne, why would you allow your children to go and work on a farm where that might happen? It's certainly a lot better than I think when I started on farming with regards to safety. But I think we, we've got to get the message out there and we've still got to do more. There's still things that I look at that we do, especially on your own farm. I can go onto someone else's farm and tell them what they're not doing. But I look on and I say, geez, I'm only doing that because I've done it that way for the last 30 or 40 years. If I saw a young young kid coming and doing that, you'd go, don't be such an idiot. David, you've been on 
both sides of the fence from a like a corporate perspective and also growing up and having uh, a fair bit to do with the family farm. And you're speaking about variability and risk and that probably ties into that safety element as well. Do you have a view on how or if it differs between a, a family farmer and a, a corporate farmer, for example? Yeah, there's a couple of angles probably worth thinking about that from that. One of them is the issue of flexibility. I would argue that the family farming farming operational unit is probably one of the best business units that you can have when it's all working well. When it's not working well, it's one of the worst family (laughs) units, business units you can have. So you've got these extremes. The corporate system brings, I think, and we're seeing that a lot of family operations are becoming more corporatized. They're bringing what the benefits of a corporate system brings into a business system, and that's about uh, systems and processes and, and culture and, and, and hierarchy and things like that, while maintaining the flexibility and the ability to move quickly that a family farming operation has. In a corporate, you don't have that, for instance, for me to buy a farm when I was working for a corporate operation, I had to go through, jump every hoop, cross, and and then report back to Germany or Europe. And by the time the operation, the, the, the opportunity for me to, to get the money together to actually buy the operation and the vigilance I'd had to go through, any bargains had gone, any opportunities to buy something on the cheap, didn't have the opportunity to actually play in. And so I always argued that, if you could bring the two together, and this is where our model tried to get to with 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 corporates actually backing large farmers. So let the let the corporates do what they're good at, and that's raising funds, looking after shareholders, dealing with all that, and let the farmer do what they're good at, which is, is running a a dynamic, volatile business system. And if you could bring the two together, you got the best of both worlds. I often find corporates trying to be farmers, they will, I think, always struggle to beat the best returns that, that family farming operations go in. And I always compare that before fees too. So make certain when they're comparing, they take their fees out first. That's a bit bit naughty of them. <laughs> Do you think it's changing more to that model that you speak of, of, of late, or are you seeing examples of that? Or? I think there is some, but I think corporates, especially superannuation funds and things like that, they, they're very – concerned about controlling everything that they've got control you know they don't want to be you know they've got this public image issue so they're quite happy to lease it out and charge someone an outrageous fee to lease their country and that's that that's fine it works for them and if it works for the farmer go for it i I wonder sometimes how how that works especially in a volatile system or they they own the whole thing they hope through scale that they can actually back the, the the fee structures that they have to charge to make money and I question whether scale works after a certain level because you double up on the bureaucracy. I would love to see financial institutions actually become involved in that because I think they have they are an intermediate and they have the ability, they've already, already got those relationships. They know who the good farmers are and they're already managing them. If they linked up with a superannuation fund, I can't see why that wouldn't work because then it would provide a, a financial institution an opportunity to both offer debt and offer um, equity funding. But, you know, then then, then I, I appreciate the aspect around Chinese walls and things, but I just think it's worth a look at, mm. not looking at anyone. <laughs> <laughs> David, you've had this 
really great extensive career in banking and consultancy. This change of pace to agriculture, how did that come about? Um, mm, interesting, isn't it? Uh, did it did it suddenly come up and hit us behind the head uh, while we weren't watching? <laughs> I think there was a couple of things, and and again, there's no doubt that contrary to, to what the dooms dooms are, the world is a better place. If you look at any indicator, the world to live in today, even given COVID, is a better place for most people in the world than 40 years ago. There's more trade, okay, for start off with. There's less people living in poverty. There's less people living in starvation. There's better growth rates around the world. Yes, is it perfect? No. But the reality is the general person's lifestyle is better than it's ever been over the course of mankind. Okay, so so what does that lead to? That leads to people wanting to eat better, okay? Not eating more, well, in some case it is, depending on where they are on the poverty line, but wanting to eat better. Now, what does Australia do? What it does do quite well is produce quality products. I'm not saying it's always the best, but overall we have a reputation around the world, and I saw that in China, of producing quality product the other thing the world likes is when the people like was when they get a bit of money under the belt and we're talking about you know when when people are earning an average wage of, of above four thousand dollars a year so matt you're well there they like to eat more protein okay so protein becomes a part of their what they want in their diet what does australia do we produce protein and you look at that it's really interesting if you look at the long-term price trends especially around 2015 2014 you see how protein markets took off. And, and before that, you could see this, this this demand for protein increasing. And when you have an increase in demand for protein, it's more expensive than carbohydrates. And so that's a good thing for Australian agriculture. A couple of things happening. Population increase without increased income is of no value because they can't afford and our cost of we no longer have a low cost of, of production. We're, we're relatively high in the world. But when you actually get an increase in income, people around the world want to make certain that they're having a higher quality food. And more important, the food doesn't kill them. Okay, so they don't ask for much, but they want safety and security first. And, and again, sitting in a Chinese supermarket, not last year, the year before, when we took a few students over there, you could see that the average consumer was looking at where this food came from because we had a perception, both us and New Zealand, that our food was safe. It can be as simple as that, and therefore they would pay a higher price for that food. So I think that, Annie, that's a long answer to your question, is that, that the world is demanding higher quality food. The world is paying more for it, and that's leading into better prices. And there's a scarcity of product. While I always argue that we're not going to run out of food, I, I think that's a furphy argument and an argument that we've got to be very careful not to get four for is that that as long as we're producing a quality product that is reasonably accessible at a reasonable price, the world's going to buy it. Yeah. And that means they're going to need farmers. And that means that they're prepared to pay a reasonable price that will come back into our pocket. And that's why land values in Western Victoria, Matt, as we know, <laughs> have gone through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's very clear that it is a great time to be in agriculture and the opportunity is huge. But 
tell me, what was it that triggered your change in career to start being a part of education in agriculture? Yeah, it was a bit of a long road, really. I, I, I was one of those people who certainly wanted to be the CEO of everything. And I was very competitive in my career and I was jumping around here and there. And then my career sort of stage left. And and that had a lot to do with family at the time, Annie, I've got to be honest. I could see that I had to make a choice between spending time with my family or spending time on my career. And my personal values was that I wanted to spend more time with my family. And that's where I sort of left a, a CEO role with a, a financial institution and went consulting. My consulting uh, days were up and down, but <laughs> while I was doing both while I was at the bank, though, I know that and looking back on it, I spent a lot of time in training. I loved teaching people, but I always thought teaching was something you did when you couldn't do a real job. You know, why would I get involved in that? So I had this, I had this individual problem that I had, you know, which was my problem, I had to get over. And and the more more I sort of was teaching at Marcus, the more I got a buzz out of it. And I can't put mm. it in any other words. I enjoy, I suppose, and Matt had to sit in one of my lectures and I, I probably can't remember what I what I taught, but I might have <laughs> might have gave a few stories <laughs> that were that were of interest. And realizing that you actually have an ability to help someone on their career was something that was a really strong value to me. And so I, I approached the, the the principal here and I said, listen, he sort of asked me for a couple of years, would I be interested in going full time? And I said, well, listen, let's give it a go. And I started and, you know, it, it's been now three or four years and I drive an hour to get to work. You would have thought I would have got bored of that by now, but every day I get up and say, what you know, what am I going to do today? What are we going to talk about? How can I support these students making good decisions going forward? How can I get that light bulb moment where I can see I'm taking a, a student from just sitting there looking at YouTubes of John Deere tractors? <laughs> well, I hope that's what they're looking at, uh, to actually starting to get interested in passion about the business of agriculture. So, and again, I think I've had a couple of successes, Matt, <laughs> I'm hoping. And, and <laughs> And the great thing is then then having that relationship with the students after they leave markets and, you know, they'll ring you up and they're, they're dealing with this or dealing with that and being able to help them or coach them through that is a buzz as well. So that's the thing, I think. You, you have that opportunity to hopefully impart some knowledge, maybe some wisdom that's going to set this person up on the, on the pathway to a very successful career in agriculture. Yeah. Playing a small part in agriculture, it is a really fun industry to be in, what exciting ideas or aspirations are you seeing coming out of your students? Yeah, I I think just the passion for the for the business and where it can go to. So these people aren't finishing agriculture like like we did, going, what job can I do or where are we going to go? These guys are looking at the saying, well, listen, I had a really interesting job opportunity in in China or Canada, or I'm going back on the farm and I've got this really interesting technology process that I'm looking at feeding, or we're looking at selling directly here or we're looking at uh, creating this expanding this business into into why or and again i you know just working in the commodity industries i mean people who the commodity industry i don't know why because it really once you understand business and anyone who's gone down the value-added chain will realize what a good fun commodity industries are and there's some fantastic things that we can be doing in that with 
again, with the new technology that's coming on, with I think just the, the new vibe, if I can put it that way, if I can borrow from the castle, about the attitudes to agriculture, both from my generation and the next generation coming on and the, and the, and the, and the, the generations that's following that, about just what we can do with this business. And there's, there is money to be made. And, and that that's always good fun. Absolutely. Yeah, just Annie, just to add to that, I think one of the things is is let's talk about the volatility in, in the business systems or, or or agriculture as well a bit there. I like the thinking that's going into that, and rather than them being doom doom and gloom about oh we're just going to throw our hands up and what can the government do and it's all the government's fault and things like that, they're sitting there and say, well, listen, how can I actually do this better? And and what can I do to change my business? And how can I actually make money out of climate change policy, for instance? Is there opportunities down that line? So as I say, it's like they, I probably learn more from the students than, than I teach them. <laughs> probably. It's, this um... is mad. <laughs> <laughs> so for students heading into year 12 or who finished last year and are taking a gap year, you know, what is the real difference or what benefits do you see in pursuing further study or further education in agriculture versus staying on farm and, and having that on-farm hands-on experience? It's not either or these days. Okay. Why I do like teaching at Marcus, and again, this is just as why I like teaching, it's got nothing about one's better or one's worse and CSU or whatever. I'm just saying what I like about this is is maintaining that practicality of what we're teaching with the interface with what farming's all about. Okay, so if I'm teaching something that 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 is too theoretical, I know the students will tell me, "Get off your high horse!" And what is it? Which is again because a lot of these students have had one or two years out, and that's the other beauty about I would highly recommend is that bringing that practical experience into lecture, uh, I think is is great, but. More importantly, it's 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 about that practicality about the teaching, and I think you'll find a lot of a lot of universities are going to go more and more down that that line as as the certainly the international market uh, dries up. They're going to they're, they're going to have to think about teaching again. I define teaching versus lecturing. It's not about just standing here and delivering and and a whole lot of powerpoints. Although I am guilty of that sometimes, um, <laughs> but it's about making certain. Well, if we we're looking at this thing. What does that mean on farm? And here's a farmer to talk to you about it. So, and if you've had that experience in that, you can actually start, you can see the eyes, just the, the light bulbs go on. So I would argue, Annie, that that blended relationship is really important. And even if you're not going back to farming, and I'll, I'll put my old banker's hat on, when I was recruiting, they were ready to go. I didn't have to teach them about anything except how to be a banker. They knew what a farm was. They knew that while I'd go to others who have obviously done very well at, at a institution, but it's been very much lab base or or class base, I had to teach them about farming. Yeah. Uh, I had to teach them about dealing with people. And and you could just see the difference between those who are ready to run and gun and knew what work was about. And especially with farming, and I always just say, no matter what career you go into, whether it's agriculture, farming students are fantastic because I, I think that they know what work is. I don't, I don't want to upset anyone, but certainly when you've, you've grown up knowing that you've got to do your chores or you've got to do this or you're good at shearing and et cetera, et cetera, you've got to work. 
when you get them into that corporate environment, uh, they they just ran and gun. It was mm. just great. And why I say that? Because I think sometimes rural students feel that they're se- not second-class students, but they worry about going into the corporate world that, oh, God, what can I do or what can I bring? And what I would argue is they bring so much. And, and you know, I know people who, who look for, for agricultural people from an agricultural background because they know that they bring that that life experience to them that, that, that other students don't. So I always say to farming students, mate, the world's an oyster. You know, you, you, you and you can see where a lot of, uh, certainly some of our students are ended up. They, they haven't always ended up in agriculture. They've ended up in some, you know, I know the ducks of Marcus Alden, who's he and his wife run a fashion label out of Melbourne. So, you know, and I know people who worked in international corporations around the world. So those business skill sets is something that goes across all industries. And some of them are hosting podcasts. <laughs> I try. <laughs> yeah, I try and Matt tries. And again, and again, I'll, I'll say this, and that's what I think about, I love about agriculture, what that shows. Okay, COVID, barrier. What do we do to get around it? And, and one of the things I've seen in agriculture is endured in new and in, in, in across Australia as well, the ingenuity of, of saying, well, let's make the most of this. And, and I, I, I think you'd agree there's things that we did during COVID and certainly things I did that I probably wouldn't have done that I will now bring into the classroom or you'll bring into the way that you do business. Yeah, 100%. I think that there's uh, a lot of things that will flow through into the workplace as well. David, to wrap this topic up and just before we wrap the conversation up today, you are a deep thinker. I just wonder, is there one piece of advice that you give a younger version of yourself? Yeah. Can I give two? <laughs> yep. Scratch it. Okay. One of the first things I think looking back is is failure is the road to success. I, I think in my past experience, when I've failed, I, I've taken it too hard and I've gone, oh God, I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? And really beaten myself up. I think unless you're failing, you're not trying. What we've got to be careful of is to step out of that comfort zone saying, well, what's the worst that can happen? Rather than looking at saying, if I fail, well, gee, what have I learned? How good was that experience? And again, I look back now on my many years of experience, just as I changed my false teeth, Matt, is that the failures is where I learned the most, where I learned about business, where I learned about people, where I learned about skill sets. And again, you think about that on the if you're playing sports or footy at the moment or whatever it is that you play, you, you don't learn to be a, a successful sports person without failing, and the same in business. And the other one I'd add to this, it's not all about you. And, and what do I mean by that is that sometimes when we get criticism, we, we, we take it to heart or someone has a go at us and we go, well, it's all about, you know, I've stuffed up, I'm a failure here, I, I, I shouldn't have done that, and it's all my fault. One of the lessons I learned the hard way was that actually sometimes that's about where that person is. So you might have a general manager, for instance, who has got pressure coming from all angles and pressure from home and something's gone wrong at work and suddenly the, you're the easiest thing for them to vent. Okay, so they just rip into you. If they're any good, they'll come back and apologize later, but that's not always the case. But what you've got to do is, as a person is to have the personal belief in yourself to say, why was that the case? 
And the more that you understand how people think, how people act, and why people do things, especially in a family farming situation, the more successful you are will be to be able to turn those those situations into improved situations rather than bury it within your emotions till you explode and then you say things that you wish you hadn't said. So those are the two bits of advice I'd go. Have a have a crack and have fun. Uh, thanks, Dave. That two great pieces of advice, and I've really enjoyed the interview today. We've we've certainly covered plenty of ground. There's one question that we ask all of our guests, and that's what brand of work boots do you wear out in the yards, not in at Marcus Oldham? Yeah, mate. Well, that's that's I've I've gone to the Grizzlies, gone away from the 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 um, elasticiders, and gone to the uh, hard caps zip up side boots. Yeah, I think that it's been a good move. It's been a bloody good move. I I, I sort of got <laughs> stuck in my 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 my, my redbacks, my blundies. Well, they're now changing, I suppose. Especially for us old guys, they're a bloody good set of boots. <laughs> and I tell you what, they're much better than than you say. My toenails would have been a lot better off if I'd worn them earlier than having sheep and cattle stand on my toes. I think, and also a horse didn't do my big toe any good at all. <laughs> Uh, Great. Thanks very much for joining us today, David. Thanks, David. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Rural Bank. Rural Bank supports the agribusiness community by providing financial services, knowledge and leadership for Australian farmers to grow. If you'd like more information about the topics we've discussed today, as well as links and other resources, we've added those to the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. And while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm Annie Herbert. And I'm Matt Howe, and we'll chat to you next time.